You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, we take you inside the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Also on the show, we meet the first Canadian hoping to complete a mid-Pacific row of almost 4,000 kilometers. But we begin with our exclusive conversation about the economy, the fall election, and NAFTA with the Federal Minister of Finance, Bill Morneau. Mr. Minister, thank you for joining us on 105.9 The Region. Tina, thanks. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Now, the House of Commons adjourned uh, late last month, but with the NAFTA ratification bill still in flux, do you think there's a chance that you're going to be back in Parliament this summer? Well, we haven't scheduled it yet, of course. What we're looking towards is the U.S. ratification process. I would say that I'm optimistic that they will get towards this either over the course of the next month or in the fall. If they get out of the next month, one of the things we'll need to consider is whether we come back in order to ratify it on the same schedule. That's uh, distinctly a possibility. Now, we've heard from our listeners across the region that gas prices are high, the stress test and the cost of owning a home is on the rise, finding a job isn't easy. Why should voters give the Liberals another mandate to govern? Well, that is the question that's going to be the question in the election. We've been focused on uh, middle-class Canadians trying to make sure that people have the ability to deal with affordability challenges. Frankly, since day one, uh, we've uh, focused not only by reducing taxes on middle-class Canadians. I mean, in the area of your listenership, there's about a quarter of a million people that have experienced a tax cut. Uh, The average family with children has about $7,000 a year coming in from their Canada Child Benefit. So these have been really important changes, but we do recognize there's more to do. And we, we see that, you know, when we look at what's happened with the conservative government in Ontario with Doug Ford, where they're making cuts, uh, we think it's exactly the wrong time to make cuts. And we should continue to invest in middle class Canadians, making sure that they know that we have their back in dealing with those uh, real affordability challenges. Now, is that going to be the approach throughout this election campaign, is tying Doug Ford to Andrew Scheer, and that they were one in the same? I think we have to recognize what's actually going on. We've, we've seen very clearly that uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives have been, over the last four years, at every turn, telling us why we should be focusing on austerity and why we should be making cuts. And what's actually happened is we've actually made investments in Canadians. We've gotten to the stage where we have the lowest unemployment rate on record. We're seeing wage growth. We're dealing with real challenges. So our approach, which is investing in the future, is working. Their approach, which has been arguing for cuts, is mirrored with what uh, is actually happening in Ontario. So I think, I think people in this province will have a pretty clear example of what they can get if they, uh, if they vote for the Conservatives. Now, Mr. Minister, you've talked about what you've accomplished during your time in government. What do you think you could have done better? Well, I, I will tell you that it has been uh, enormously challenging in dealing with the, uh, the international world that we faced. So we've obviously had to deal with, uh, with Donald Trump in the White House. That's been a challenge. Uh, the good news is we've, we've come up and dealt with that challenge. 
Uh, we're obviously dealing with a very significant issue in, in dealing with, with China right now and the China-U.S. trade talks. So it's, it's, uh, it's certainly challenging. I think we can always uh, aspire to do more. Um, where our goal will be to, to show Canadians that the kind of investments we've made have been working uh, and identify the places where there's more to be done. You mentioned a few of them when we came on. The, the housing challenge for people, we can do more. The first-time homebuyer incentive that we put in place is going to help people. We need to think about how we continue to help people. Uh, students are facing challenges because of the cuts in Ontario. We're going to need to think about how we continue to help families and students. Uh, so there will be more to do. Uh, I think there's places where we'll be able to, to focus our efforts to, uh, to help people feel more confident in the face of a changing world. And what about the seniors in our area? What do you want to say to them? Well, I know that uh, the cost of living is a real challenge for seniors, as people on fixed income. We need to recognize that. Uh, we've done some really important things. When we moved the old age security number or age back to 65, when we increased the guaranteed income supplement, these were important measures. But I think we need to continue to look at how we, uh, how we support people in their, uh, in their later years. Uh, one of the things that I was pleased we got to this year in our past budget is we allowed people, if they want to work, to keep more of their money and not get the old age security clawed back. So that's an important way for seniors to deal with, um, with what they might want to do with their life. But we'll be, we'll be looking at some other ideas in the course of our campaign that we think will, will be positive for people as they face up to those, uh, I guess, what they call the golden years. Can we get your thoughts on your former colleagues, Dr. Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould, deciding to run as independents in the fall election? Well, I respect their decision. They, uh, they decided that they'd rather run as independents, and uh, that's, uh, that's fair. Uh, they're, they're both uh, smart, uh, smart women and, and uh, will, of course, be fielding candidates in, in every one of the 338 ridings. We think that the record that we're running on, the record that is uh, having the backs of middle-class families, uh, making sure that uh, people recognize that, uh, that we're going to keep focusing on them, that's going to allow people to make an important judgment. And that's a judgment that, uh, that we're going to continue to be the ones on their side. And, you know, if we look at the conservatives, they're more likely to be supporting the wealthiest. Uh, that, we think, is going to be the key decision point for Canadians. Do you plan to run again this fall in the riding of Toronto Centre? Absolutely. I'm signed up and uh, I've got my uh, team and I've actually been out uh, knocking on doors in the last uh, few weeks. It's uh, positive for, uh, for me to be out and, and hear how people are doing. It reminds me of how important it is that we keep, uh, we keep investing and not, not do what others are arguing, which is, is make cuts. Uh, that would not, in my estimation, be the right way to deal with a rapidly changing world. Minister, just before we go, what is your message to our listeners before we go to the polls on October 21st? What I would say to your listeners is that the Liberal government has got their backs, that we've been working for four years to make sure that we deal with a, a world that is changing rapidly, that's causing anxieties and challenges, we recognize, but that we still have more to do. We may have got ourselves to the lowest unemployment rate in 40 years, but that doesn't mean that everyone's seeing the success they need to see. So we need to keep investing in the conservative approach of, of cuts and austerity it's just not going to work. It's going to leave us in a worse situation. So I want them to know that that contrast is real. 
and that we're the ones that are going to have their backs. Minister Morneau, thank you for joining us on 105.9 The Region. Thank you so much, Tina, for having me on. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Afwa Ba is next with a celebration of Indigenous art. Although June was the uh, official month for National Indigenous History Month, the city of Vaughan will be celebrating Indigenous culture throughout the year. They have a wonderful exhibit that is highlighting wonderful Indigenous uh, art um, and many things that, that is just very synonymous with uh, Canadian culture and, of course, Indigenous culture. So to learn more about the exhibit that is right now at this Vaughan City Hall, I am now speaking with Sharon Gomkuchar, who is the Senior Art Curator and Planner with the City of Vaughan. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So let us know, what uh, is the Canada's North exhibition all about? The exhibition, the title is Facing North, Art, Symbol and Story. And the City of Vaughan wanted to recognize the the outstanding creative accomplishments of um, Indigenous culture and Indigenous artists specifically towards the, um, the creative uh, wealth of con- contemporary Canadian art. And in this case, um, we're featuring three Inuit artists and, um, who are very highly applauded and whose work really contributes significantly to the Canadian art scene. That's beautiful. And so I know that the uh, National Indigenous History Month was just for June. Talk to me about uh, why the city decided to extend having this exhibition in place through to December, pretty much for uh, half of the year. Yes. Um, well, it's it's a major um, undertaking. Uh, first of all, we did want to recognize uh, National Indigenous History Month and National Indigenous Peoples Day in June. But the exhibition um, is featuring three highly applauded artists, and it was uh, quite an undertaking to, to get their work here and to negotiate the loans. And we wanted to provide an extended opportunity, really, for the public to uh, to connect with the artwork, which really extends beyond National Indigenous History Month because these are the original um, Canadian artists, our original contemporary Canadian art scene. So it's very important for us to uh, provide an extended opportunity for viewers. Let us know then uh, the artists that will be um, displaying their work uh, throughout these next few months. There are three Inuit artists. Um, two are sculptors. Um, Abraham Angic Rubin, um, who is a sculptor working in soapstone. Uh, Billy Merkisak, an artist uh, working in uh, whalebone. And Irene Avalakwiak, who is working in uh, wall hangings uh, made out of felt and wool. Wow, that's beautiful. Okay, and so I know that uh, a few of these artists, um, they've, they've also had their sculptures and their, um, their art being seen at uh, different places, including the Smithsonian? Uh, Abraham Rubin's work has been at the Smithsonian. Um, all three artists have, uh, they're in the collections of the National Gallery of Canada. Um, Abraham Rubin is perhaps the most um, widely recognized. His work is uh, all over the world, including the Smithsonian. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Okay, and can you just talk to me about uh, maybe the title of the exhibit, Facing North, Art, Symbol, and Story. Why uh, those words in particular? Well, Inuit art really is a reflection of uh, historic precedent. It depicts the narrative uh, subject matter that was inspired by the Inuit's relationship with their environment, which is um, full of, of symbolism and mythology. So their artwork really is a depiction of everyday life. And 
their traditional practices of hunting and migration and their relationship, spiritual, mythological, with the animals and the, uh, the harsh environment in which they lived. So we really just wanted to convey that Inuit art is symbolic in nature. It is a reflection of traditional oral tradition, of, of ephemeral um, passing, and we, re- we just really wanted to capture um, what the essence of it and how, how enigmatic and spiritual it is. And I love how the, the items that they use, for example, for Irene's work, she uses um, an Inuit wool fabric. And it's, it's yeah. things that are very, very specific to the culture. Um, and it, as you just mentioned, also tells the story about their culture. It's a beautiful sort of uh, seamless work that ties into it. Um, yes, Irene's work is, is rather fascinating because it's um, it's a ref- it's her remembrances of her childhood. It's really where myth meets reality. Um, the 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 spiritual characters or cast of characters, if you like, that she does feature are partly from memory, partly from reality. You have human bodies with animal heads and vice versa. So um, it really is a reflection of her childhood, but very much of her um, historic past that um, was conveyed to her from her grandparents through oral tradition. Wow, that's beautiful. Okay, I'm already excited. So how do residents um, get to see this exhibit? I know it's happening until December, if you could just give us the specifics, but um, how would this exhibit work? Do they just go in and see the sculptures, or will there be somebody walking them through the exhibit? We um, have deliberately positioned um, our on the Slate Gallery very close to the entrance. So anyone who walks into Vaughn City Hall Monday through Friday between 8.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. will simply just encounter the exhibition. It's on um, an 80-foot long wall. So we invite, we we welcome audiences of all ages to just come in and view the exhibition. Um, If there is a group that is interested in having um, a guided tour, um, I would be only too happy to accommodate that. But generally it's just um, when you walk in, whether it be for a meeting or to pay your bills or just to come and see the exhibition, please enjoy the exhibition and um, become familiar with, with the art of the Inuit that is more than just dancing bears and anakshaks. It's so much more. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with you there. Okay. And so if residents uh, want more information about the exhibit or, um, of course, the Times, once again, where can they go? They can go to vonca slash art. Perfect. Sharon, thank you so much just for walking me through, just giving me a taste of what the exhibit is all about. I hope everyone gets the chance to go out and see uh, Facing North, Art, Symbol, and Story. Um, It's something that is a part of Canadian culture. It's something that definitely we all have to experience. Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. If your lawn could use a little TLC, listen up. Our Sydney Bourguignon with the facts from Kyle Tobin, the Chief Environmental Officer at Lawn Savers. Do you mind telling me a bit about Lawn Savers and what your team does? Yes, Lawn Savers Plant Healthcare are uh, a team of professionals that focus on plant health. So that means focusing on lawn health, tree health, and What a lot of that is, is just building up plant health through fertilization, nutrients, things like that, and preventing or managing pest infestations. So really focusing on the health of a plant is what prevents most problems that really frustrate gardeners. And so it is summertime, so a lot of people are trying to maintain their lawn now. What is the biggest problem or issues that people uh, usually face? So 
every year, weather is probably the biggest factor that creates issues for home gardeners. And so it's so variable. We go from last year having two weeks of frost in April to this year having really what most people would say was, you know, flooding and and, and severe monsoon type exactly. weather. Exactly. <laughs> um, but then we go from other years where it's hot and dry immediately. The one thing that's consistent is that we'll get weather and that weather will be variable. Plants are very good at adapting as long as people are willing to adapt as well. And so there's not really any complete hard and fast rules um, except focus on the basics and always make sure that we're um, doing those things properly. Stay away from myths and get to, the, get, get to doing things right. That way you really reduce a lot of the inputs required, whether that's from products that need to be put on, and actually save yourself some time and effort. So you mentioned myths. What are those exactly? So the biggest things that people do is, um, you know, they, they gather information from the Internet or from friends and neighbors, and a lot of that refers to mowing and watering. And we always have to remember as professionals that there's those basics aren't something that everybody knows. There's a lot of new homeowners, especially going on throughout York Region, that aren't maybe used to having a lawn or tending to a lawn. And so there's a lot of things we take for granted. So we always want to start with the main basic of proper mowing and watering. In order to properly water a lawn, a lawn needs about one inch of water per week in each area. Too often people are frequently hand watering the lawn, doing too little, but too frequently. The idea is deep watering less frequently. That makes all the difference on a lawn. And you want to start that off as a consistent kind of um, regimen that you're going to do so the lawn can develop deep roots. Deep roots solve lots of problems. The next thing is proper mowing. And people mow kind of based on their calendar schedule. But when God or whomever created plants, um, I don't think they were looking at a Monday or, or a weekend kind of idea. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so when it comes to mowing, what we want to do is we want to mow high, three inches. It's usually the top setting or the second highest setting on your mower. And the trick is to do it frequently. Every five days or so would really set your lawn up for success. It's funny. As there's a challenge that we give every customer that calls. We try to make sure we get that out. We say, I dare you to mow your lawn every five days for the next two months and call me if your lawn's not looking amazing. Now, that's in combination with the types of things we do to help the health of the lawn. But that one little aspect, coupled with watering, because it needs water for life, uh, solves a lot of problems, you know. So mm -hmm. lawn care is really a partnership in getting the right types of products on the lawn to promote health, to manage pests, and then to really kind of uh, make sure that you're doing the proper maintenance. So speaking of pests, how can people control insects? So again, that goes back to prevention. So having a healthy lawn that is thick, growing vigorously, and was well-maintained, allows you to have a much higher threshold of pests in any situation. So whether it's chinch bugs or grubs, which are the most common types of pests, so grubs are something that eat the roots of the lawn, and grubs are most active in August, September, October until frost. And then they come up for a very short period of time in the spring. Um, those types of insects are very destructive. But a lawn that is healthy, well-watered, and growing thick 
can actually withstand two to three times the amount of grubs per square foot than an unhealthy lawn. It's the same idea with chinch bugs. Chinch bugs come out in that hot, dry summer weather, typically in July, and chinch bugs eat the blades of the grass. Well, they don't eat. They actually suck juices out of the blades of the grass, Hmm. and they inject a venom into it that makes it turn brown. Now, a well-watered lawn can, again, withstand much higher thresholds of chinch bug activity than a lawn that is suffering stress. So stress can be from dryness or too much activity on the lawn or hacking it down with a mower every two or three weeks um, just because it's more convenient. That type of stuff really stresses a plant. And when you're going to a client's house, let's say, what do you find is the most common problem across the board? It goes back to proper mowing and watering, and it's letting things get out of hand. There's a funny analogy that I, I, well, I don't know if it's funny, but it's it's something that I find really kind of impresses um, what we're trying to teach people, and it's just like working out. We don't sit on the couch, we don't watch movies, eat candy for years on end, and then expect to go to the gym one day and all of a sudden have a six-pack or a bikini body. What we do is when we recognize that it's time to get healthy for our physical well-being, we recognize that it's going to be consistency and the long run that makes a difference. So the, the analogy that I use and the comparisons are simply we have to hydrate our bodies. We must hydrate our lawn. We must do cardio in order to lose weight and kind of keep healthy lungs and a great system working inside our body. And that's the equivalent to mowing frequently. So that type of thing, plus coupled with what we all know is we must eat right. And the more consistently we eat right, having healthy amount of calories, the right kind of foods with the right kind of nutrients, everything magically works. But giving up, going through yo-yo diets, kind of always having treats every second day, all those types of things just really, it may not mess up what you're doing because gardening and, and, and lawns are, are pretty forgiving, but you got to get back on the schedule. And when you get back on the schedule, you can keep it up. It's really about consistency over the long run. I think we all uh, wish that it could be the prior where we can eat whatever we want and uh, still be healthy and the same thing with our lawns. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And hey, I struggle like everybody else. (laughs) But when it does come to lawns, you're actually kind of getting both things going at the same time. You're getting some exercise, you're getting outdoor, you're going to get energy from being out amongst gardening, the psychological benefits of just being out in a garden, tending to lawns, flowers, shrubs, um, really kind of puts you in the right mood to have a healthy outlook. And so you mentioned earlier that grubs are very destructive. So what do they do to the lawn? So what they're doing is they're eating the roots of the lawn. Oh, okay. So when there are too many grubs per square foot, they will eat more roots than the plant can actually regrow. So if a plant can't regrow and replenish those roots, it's no longer bringing up nutrients, bringing up moisture into the plant above. And then what you see is eventually a browning of that area. The biggest thing that uh, is coupled with grubs that um, uh, there's maybe a lack of understanding out there is that we get destructive animals digging in your lawn because of grubs. So because grubs have eaten the roots, those are the... the, um, Uh, the powers that kind of hold turf into the soil, raccoons, skunks, even sometimes squirrels, but it's almost commonly raccoons and skunks, they come digging up looking for any insect. 
the nature of a raccoon or a skunk is to lift up and find dark places where um, there might be insects, dark, moist places. And so if grass lifts up, they're going to keep doing it. So they're not the problem. They're a symptom of a bigger problem of grubs that have been eating your roots so, so that your lawn lifts up easily. So the trick is to keep a well-fertilized lawn so you're going to have a robust root system. And then it's to anticipate if you have a grub problem. And you can look for things like June bugs. June bugs, June beetles, European chafer beetles. Those are the types of bugs that people see flying around their lights at dusk, generally in June. But there are other times of the year as well. Those beetles, it is their egg laying that they just indiscriminately, as they're flying around, drop eggs into lawns that become a grub. And it's so those eggs turn into a larva. That larva is called a white grub. And they're the ones that voraciously feed on those roots. So it's essentially finding the root of the problem so it doesn't escalate to to more things like having skunks and raccoons digging up in your lawn. There's a lot of puns in lawn care. That's one of them. But yes, you always want to get to the root of the problem. And that prevents most issues. So uh, again, watering to develop a bigger root system, more fertilization, and then treating grubs with a, a proper treatment regimen. Um, in our area, we're allowed to use nematodes, but getting healthy nematodes that are actually going to work and applying them at the right time. The right time is everything. And there's too many um, retailers that might be selling things out there at the wrong time of the year and people that just hear about stuff without getting the facts. The only time that you can have effective grub control utilizing nematodes is in mid to, to late August through September, depending on the weather. There's about a two-week buffer period on each end. Any other time, you're wasting money. So, um, sorry if I pronounce it wrong, but is it nematodes? Yes, nematodes, nematodes. They're, I, I can't tell you the exact right one, but <laughs> they're both potato-potato. So, I, do they work similarly to pesticides then? Uh, so, a pesticide is simply anything that is going to manage or kill a pest. Mm -hmm. And so uh, people typically, though, um, kind of wrap that up with chemicals only. So nematodes are a pesticide because what they're doing is killing the grub. And the way they work is actually swimming through the soil. They're microscopic, tiny little worms that you would need uh, a high-powered lens to see. Uh, but what they do is they swim through moist soil and they infect the grub with a bacterium that's on them. And so they actually enter into the grub and then that bacterium expands through them and kills the grub. Kind of nasty. <laughs> the Nobody more you really know. Wants to visualize <laughs> it, really. But it works um, to a good degree, but it must be done each year. It's not like a chemical that in, in the past there's been chemicals that you can just apply and boom, everything's dead. I don't think anybody wants that. Certainly lawn care professionals don't want to use the types of things like that that are going to kill everything because there's beneficial insects in mm -hmm. a lawn as well. Exactly. We get good results coupled with going right back to proper mowing, proper watering, proper fertilization. It's all that kind of science behind um, growing healthy lawns and trees that makes a difference. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. You have definitely provided us with some insight on how to maintain your lawn. Next week, you can tune into the feed to hear Kyle talk about what people should be checking off their list this month in terms of lawn care and much more.
You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for replay. Our next stop takes us inside the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Over to Rob Daniels with the pitch. Joining us this week is Scott Crawford. Scott Crawford is the Operations Director at the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in beautiful St. Mary's, Ontario. Thanks so much for joining us today, Scott. Hey, glad to be on. Anytime. All right. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your time working at the Hall throughout the years in St. Mary's and what your daily duties are there? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a big, long story. But, uh, <laughs> well, I, feel- uh, I started here in 99 as a volunteer and started working here in 2000, so it's been a great 20 years, and um, I basically look after the day-to-day activity. I'm the only full-time permanent staff here, and it's, so it's a wide variety of stuff every day from, you know, museum-related items to social media, the website, to the site, because we have a 32-acre site with four ball fields, um, and it's uh, and all the marketing and promotion and everything. It's a, it's a long list that keeps you busy. Oh, absolutely. It is quite the full-time job, and uh, we're so happy that you, you keep it running the way it is, and uh, it's, it's definitely a special place. Uh, Induction Day is obviously the big one for you guys in St. Mary's. And uh, I was actually very lucky to just be there myself a couple weeks ago, seeing you and witnessing uh, Ryan Dempster, Jason Baygordash, and Rob Thompson all get inducted. What's special about Induction Day for you specifically? You know what's the best part is is hearing the stories and, and seeing the inductees with their families here. I mean, it was it was great this year. Ryan and Jason both had their parents and their kids and their siblings here, um, so it was a great family event. Gord had his his kids here and some really close friends, and of course Rob had uh, half the town of uh, where he lives here. But uh, <laughs> his brothers and his uh, wife, family, and his family were all here. His kids were here. His two daughters with their boyfriends. Um, it's really about hearing their stories and, and seeing them enjoy the day with their family. As baseball players are away from their families a lot, and uh, for them to get to celebrate with their family is really important to me. Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. It was nice to see all that for sure, and uh, all the employees that you uh, hire there that work at the Hall of Fame, especially on Induction Day. I've only seen them on Induction Day, but they're so friendly, and i got to give kudos to you for, for bringing in some great people there who uh, definitely keep a, a smile on your face as the, uh, as the day rolls on on Induction Day. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, it's a big team here. I might be the only full-time permanent one, but we have our summer staff on the site and in the museum, and, and we use 100 volunteers induction weekend from setting up on Wednesday to cleaning up on the Monday. You know, without those 100 people, this, the event doesn't happen, so it's, uh, volunteers are very key. Absolutely. Then there are times, Scott, where your baseball worlds kind of collide with our friends uh, south of the border. Just uh, two years ago, this month actually, Roy Halladay was inducted into the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum a few months before his tragic passing. Now you will be headed to Cooperstown next month to witness his induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown. What What are you looking forward to in your visit there next month on Induction Day? No, it's to see his uh, wife and boys again, Brandy and Ryan and Braden. Uh, I mean, they were here for his induction in 2017, and uh, obviously now their their lives have moved on without Roy, um, which is very sad, especially for his kids. I mean, no no kid, you know, 
teenage boy want, they should, shouldn't lose their dad so young. I mean, it's got to be tough on them without growing up without their dad. Um, but they seem to have done well, and, and they're thriving um, as their own. As we know, they're Ryan, or Braden's playing baseball, and, and Ryan's doing his thing as well. So it's great. It's going to be, you know, it's nice to say hi to them and, and uh, tell them we're thinking about them and staying in touch, and, and they're support them again. They were so nice to us when they arrived, and uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to watch Watch Roy's family on the on the big stage at Cooperstown. Now, do you have an actual opinion on who on which um, team he should be inducted with, or are you just kind of like saying, you know what, I'm going to leave my opinion to myself, or it's whatever makes the family happy? What What are your thoughts on that? On, well, on, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, it's it's up to the family. You know, the inductee, and they work with Cooperstown and decide, you know, which hat to wear. Um, a lot of Blue Jay fans were upset because, you know, he pitched so long in Toronto, uh, re-signed that one-day contract at the end of his career at Toronto. And But, I mean, he's in the World Series with Philly. He threw the no-hitter with Philly. Um, he had a few good years with Philly as well. So, um you know, I, I, you know, when they're, you know, when he was inducted into our Hall of Fame, obviously he's American, so he was inducted for his Blue Jay days, so that made it quite easy. But again, we let our inductees sort of do what they want with their hats. Um, you know, when Larry Walker was inducted in 2009, you'll notice he has a Team Canada hat on or a Baseball Canada hat on. Uh, you know, he played for the Expos, the Rockies, and the Cardinals, but his choice was to to just represent all of Canada because he's, he's a truly proud Canadian. Um, this, this year, you know, Rob Thompson went in with an affiliate uniform, even though he played or even though he coached 28 years with the Yankees, but now he's currently with the Phillies. So um, he, he picked the Phillies over the Yankees for, for that reason because it was his current team. So it's, it's, it's a hard decision for the families and for the players, but it is what it is, and uh, he's not the first to – not going to the team. I mean, Mike Messina, right along with them this year, isn't uh, is going with a blank hat, and uh, several other players in the past have done the same. Yeah, and I, I think just just to sort of shy away, you know, to to not cause any controversial moments or to upset anyone, uh, he he was magical in both cities, Toronto and Philadelphia, and he has uh, some history in both cities. His family loved both cities, so so why not? Uh, you know, just go in as, you know, he mutually loved both teams and, uh, and he goes in with a blank hat, like you suggested. Um, I, you know, it's going, it's going to be quite the special day. When, when is it again? It's July 21st or 22nd? Yeah, it's the third weekend in July. It's the uh, 21st is the ceremony. They hold the ceremony on the Sunday. Um, they do a whole weekend of things, uh, Saturday and Sunday down in Cooperstown. But, uh, yeah, July 21st is Roy's big day. He'll be the 12th player or the 12th person in both Hall of Fames, our Hall of Fame and the one in Cooperstown. So it's, again, another special moment that we got 12 people that are in both Hall of Fames. That's truly incredible. Uh, I sure hope you'll ex- uh, share some of the experience, if any of our uh, Canadian fans or, or people from York Region, let's say, or even out in St. Mary's want to follow some of it. Will you be posting uh, some content from there? Yep, for sure. I mean, you follow our Instagram page, or Facebook, Twitter. We got all three of those going, and uh, we'll be we'll be sharing what we can down there and and uh, showing the story of uh, Canadian baseball. There'll be a lot of Canadian fans down there, a lot of Blue Jay fans, obviously, and uh, that will hopefully lead into uh, 2020 when hopefully Larry Walker gets inducted, and, and there'll be even more Canadians down there. Nice. Well, we look forward to definitely following along uh, your journey. And back to the Canadian uh, Baseball Hall of Fame for a minute here. What would you say, Scott, is your favorite 
uh, let's say, artifact or piece of memorabilia that exists at your Hall of Fame? You know, it's, um, I guess there's two, two ones. Uh, one would be the home plate that Joe Carter stepped on to win the 1993 World Series. We all remember the big home run, but it's not an official home run until you step on the plate. And, and we have the plate that's donated by Paul Beeston to us on display. And, um, you know, that's the biggest hit in, in Canadian baseball history is that home run. Um, cause you can't, Doing, you know, we won the World Series with that hit, so obviously that was huge. Um, the other thing would be, of course, our autographed Babe Ruth bat and ball. Uh, we all know Babe Ruth, you know, had his historic career and one of the best home run hitters in the history of the game. But you know, for us to have a ball and a bat signed by the Babe, and it's uh, it's pretty special because he's, uh, even though he doesn't lead the majors in home runs in his career, he's still considered, you know, the best home run hitter ever. Oh, absolutely! And let's just, uh, of course, never be mistaken for this ever again. It's Babe Ruth, not Baby Ruth. <laughs> <Did you? laughs> that's right. He's, uh, you know, his name was George, but he got the nickname Babe, and uh, that's what he's known by. Yeah, from the Sandlot days. I bring that up. If anyone has seen the Sandlot, the 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 child in the movie that played baseball with his father's baseball in his uh, cherished collection of baseballs, he had a signed Babe Ruth ball, and he said, "I don't know. Some lady signed it. Her name was I don't know, Baby Ruth." <laughs> <laughs> I, exactly. I I, I, I had a good baseball movie. Yeah, definitely one of the the greatest movies out there for baseball. And uh, and now that summer is here, Scott, uh, baseball is the sport to turn to. What can folks hoping to to visit the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame this summer look forward to upon their visit? The um, really they can see the new and uh, you know the new museum. It's expanded. It's. Uh, uh, renovated, so we have the new addition on the front. Uh, we have the Webster Visitors Lounge, and we have the Archive Center and Research Library um, that's put together. And then, you know, the whole uh, the whole building, the, old, the older part of the building is all renovated, professionally done, and uh, and it's it's really looking good. There's a lot of compliments. We've renovated one whole room just to be the Hall of Fame plaques, and uh, it's quite uh, quite new and and very nice looking. Amazing. Can you can you give us any hints? by the way, as to who will be inducted into the Hall of Fame next year, and if not, when can we all find that one out? <laughs> I wish I knew, I tell you, but uh, the selection committee is spread across Canada, does all that. Um, if nominations are due December 1st, and then the committee goes into their uh, uh, process and does their voting, and they're talking sort of in December and January, and then the uh, End of January, we tell the lucky inductees, and we announce beginning of February. So even if I uh, if I could tell you, I, would, I don't even know who, who's getting it. <laughs> hey, it's all good. Uh, Scott, uh, you seem like a fantastic guy, and we appreciate everything you do in St. Mary's, Ontario. It is such a, a quaint, picturesque, beautiful town, and, uh, and the Canadian Bo- Baseball Hall of Fame is the backdrop to that town. We sure hope you uh, pay uh, the museum a, a visit at some point this summer. Go say hello to Scott Crawford and his team. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a great place for anyone that loves the game of baseball, and, uh, and go grab some lunch out there. We sure hope you enjoy it. This is 105.9 The Region and The Feed. Thanks so much, Scott Crawford. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including plans for a mid-Pacific fundraising row. Okay, so first of all, why are you going to do this? Um, so the 
idea of ocean rowing came about, I didn't know it actually existed, and I came across it on after a film festival. So there were four women who had rowed across the, uh, the Atlantic, um, and they had made a documentary out of it, and I found it quite interesting. It's one of those adventure sports um, film festivals where you're like crazy people, but that was that one of the eight, and I was like, yeah, maybe I could do that one day, um, but because of the, the rowing side of it. Um, and the idea just kind of stuck with me, and then I came across someone else who had done a newspaper article about them, and I was like, oh, it's the same thing, so I investigated it. Um, and I think the reason why I want to do it is um, one thing that I've always had a heart for and a passion for, I guess, is um, those who have largely material poverty, but obviously material poverty comes with many other aspects of um, poverty. Um, so that's something that's broken my heart is the, I guess, the injustice that lives, um, that exists in our world between people largely based on geography. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the reason that I wanted to do it is to do fundraising and also raise awareness. So how do you train for something like that? Uh, so most of my training at the moment is weight training, so just getting strong in it to, to be stronger but also for injury protection. Um, and then um, doing cardio, but I haven't ramped up to sort of high levels, probably just doing maybe an hour, an hour or two a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I get the boat, because it's um, still in England, and I'll have that and start doing long days. So starting to sort of row all day on Saturday and um, Sunday on the weekends, and then um, a couple evenings or three or four evenings a week as well. Um, when you okay, so how, you, how the how is it going to work? Because you're going to be you're expecting it to take you how long? Uh, it'll take three months, probably. Okay, three months. That's that's your goal for three months. And you're going from where to where? Uh, I'll go from Monterey in California to Hilo in Hawaii. So it's on the, the main Hawaii island, Big Island. Um, and the only other woman who's done it solo took 99 days. And um, people who've done it are either taking 58 days up to 112. It just depends on the weather and also, I guess, in some ways, your strength and if you have problems. Because if something happens with the boat from a maritime point of view, even if you can row, you just have to fix the boat um, and get that going. I was going to ask you, what are some of the challenges that you could possibly face? Um, so you could capsize in a storm, and if the hatch happened to be open at the time, that would be quite bad. Um, a lot of people who that's happened to, they're okay, but then uh, all their electrics are messed up stuff so they have to um, pull out because none of their things are working so uh, one of the big things is it's actually or you could get an injury so a lot of people I've known who've had to stop um, while starting it's actually not been um, that they you know I can't row anymore it's um, they've had an injury but more often um, issues with the boat hmm. are you, and are you going to have I'm, I'm assuming you're going to have a crew with you is that how it's going to work no so it'll just be me and a little boat so, okay, so so just you. So what about sleeping and that sort of thing? Uh, so you, there's a cabin on the boat. So it's it's not the small size that you'd see on a river boat. So the boat itself is about 24 feet long. So two cars put together end to end and about the same width as those two cars. Um, so there's a cabin on one end where you can lie down in, and then there's a storage one on the other end. And so if you sleep, you just um, stick in a parasail anchor, which is just a 
basically a big parachute that sits in the water and it keeps you from moving too much. So if you're the current, you'll flow with the current, but the wind shouldn't move you too much. Wow. So no, it's just going to be you, nobody else. Nobody else. That, that could be some lonely days. I don't know. It seems so. It's, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> how do you, okay, how do you train yourself mentally then to deal with that? Um, I feel like I do quite a lot of things on my own. Um, and I don't mind my own company, which is quite good. Um, it will be lonely, but you do always have things to do. So it'll be interesting to see. And apart from, I don't know, hiding away in the mountains, I, in some respects you can't train yourself too much. I think probably the biggest thing is when you're feeling very, very low and flat is being able to push through that and still keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a def- definitely a, tense of phys- uh, uh, a test of physical and mental will doing it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, what does your family think? Um, they're cautiously supportive. It's best <laughs> yeah. So I'm the bandwagon, but not so sure about it. Um, yeah, that's probably their, their position. Do you feel, I mean, there are, like you said, there are so many things. It's really depend when weather is something that's, that will determine um, how your journey goes. Are you confident that you're going to be able to make it? Um, yes, I think so. People have done it in the past. Um, probably the biggest challenge in that particular route is that the first 300 miles offshore are, are more difficult to get out. So if you have to get in the Atlantic, you're going to be topping your boat and you'll you'll get there with the current even if you're not rowing eventually. Um, the Pacific, you have to, we're in that particular spot because the winds are um, onshore, so they're they're pushing, the, the wind's coming at you. Um, so it's harder to get off off the coast. Okay. So once you get through that, um, yeah, it'll be easier. So that, that's one part where people, those who've pulled out have done so in the first seven days. Okay. One individual. Okay. Yeah, so that, right, at, yeah. right at the beginning, it's, it's, it's challenging. Especially, it's challenging. Yeah, so if you can get through that and then not have any boat issues, then yeah, there, there shouldn't be a reason you don't. But um, if you have a look at the stats, it's probably a sixty-six percent success rate. Okay, so that's not that's not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. It, it's good, but like definitely, it could not happen, and it might not even be your fault. Right. So. Right. Is, now you're doing it for you're raising money for Emmanuel International Canada. Can you tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, about that charity? Um, yeah, so Emmanuel um, was started in the seventies, um, and basically what they do is they work with um, in probably about seven or eight different countries, um, mostly East Africa, Brazil, Philippines, and South Africa, but um, Tanzania, Uganda, Malawi, and Sudan, and they partner with local churches, which is one of the few sort of organized groups within um, remote rural communities. Um, and what the, the church sees is a need in the area. Um, so if there's need for health um, education, so um, the program that the funds will probably be going to in Canada, we're just waiting to see if the program is going to get extended, is called um, the Promise Project. And basically they're working to um, increase um, maternal and child um, health mm-hmm. and so that the mortality rates go down. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. having um, a kid... You have a one in seventy-five um, mortality rate in some parts of of Malawi, whereas in Canada you're looking at one in sixty-seven thousand. I mm. think so. 
just vast differences in, in the survival rates, but then also the health of children mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, as well, so under five. So um, that's that's where the, the funds would go um, within it. And it's um, basically a lot of it is education, but also working on um, nutrition and vitamins as well. And you mentioned a little bit earlier um, how this this um, touches you personally because there are so many charities, there are so many foundations out there that you could raise funds for. Why this one in particular? Well, I think this one I've had a personal connection. So uh, my parents have worked, my dad's worked for uh, a manual for over 40 years. Um, so I've seen the ins and outs of it and I have traveled overseas as well. So I've seen good and bad aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is really good stuff. It's it's local, it's holistic, it's long-term, it's not driven towards the project. And the people that, um, those who do uh, go from, uh, say, a Western country to this place, um, very humble attitude so that they go under the leadership of the local people. Mm-hmm. They're not coming in and directing things. But to be honest, most of the people who carry out the work are actually from uh, in-country. So the local Malawians that would be uh, working and doing the work. So... Good luck with the fundraising, and we will definitely be and we'll be we'll be keeping track of you and what what's happening for sure. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay, thank you for your time. Thanks really appreciate it. Heather Taylor aims to row almost thirty nine hundred kilometers across the Pacific Ocean, starting from Monterey, California, in April twenty twenty. Heather will not see land for sixty to ninety plus days until she arrives in Hawaii. For more information, go to ei Canada. And that's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event you'd like to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.